Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading today is going to be from Isaiah chapter 57. Uh, We'll be reading verses 14 through 21. Um, If you're going to use a Bible that's underneath a chair near you, it should be on page 617. Um, So if you will, uh, open there with me. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 57, uh, verses 14 through 21. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, worship team, for uh, helping us worship today. You did a great job. Appreciate that. As Cody just read, our sermon text for today is Isaiah chapter 57, verses 14 through 21. And the title of my sermon today is called The Promise of Peace. Now, everybody wants peace, but what really is peace. And where do you find this peace? Well, peace is defined uh, very differently depending on who you talk with and where you visit. In 2018, Paul McCartney did a concert in Tel Aviv, Israel, but he didn't want to ignore the Palestinians. So before doing his concert, he arranged to visit a group of Palestinian music students in the Gaza Strip, and in response to his trip there to the Middle East, McCartney released a song entitled, People Want Peace. So it it is true, everybody wants peace. But for many, peace means the end of conflict between nations or a people group, uh, people groups. And that certainly can be a very noble goal. For others, peace means inner tranquility. Peace means freedom from troubling or oppressive thoughts or emotions. For others, peace means living a problem-free life. And so you avoid people or situations and even responsibilities with the hope of living a trouble-free life, or you want peace in that way. For others, peace happens only when you discover techniques to manage stress. 
For others, peace means harmony in personal relationships. Peace means different things to different people. And because of that, people um, also pursue peace in many different ways. Um, it, it is amazing what you find if you Google uh, how to find peace. And there you'll find many different lists, including spending time in nature, uh, meditation such as yoga or mindfulness, uh, the importance of being grateful, uh, taking responsibilities for your own actions, or not, to not let the past define who you are, to, in fact, love yourself, uh, practice acceptance and contentment, and, of course, declutter. That's always good. You've got to get rid of clutter in order to have peace. There's many different things that people suggest that you need to do to find peace. But when the Lord in Isaiah 57 promises peace, what did he mean? And how do we, how do we receive his peace? Well, by definition, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, and it is more than just the absence of distress or hostilities. Shalom speaks of absolute well-being and wholeness. Uh, one of my favorite songs to sing is entitled, It Is Well With My Soul. And that is a pretty good way for us to think about this shalom. It is well with my soul because of what God has given to us in Christ by His Spirit. We, we can say, it is well with my soul. But how, how do we find this shalom or peace. It's, it's not in a technique, and the source of peace is not us looking inward to find that inner peace. Peace is found, though, in a person, and that person is Jesus the Christ. Ephesians 2.14 teaches us that Jesus is our peace. In Isaiah 9.6, uh, we learn that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He, he is the King of Peace. Uh, of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, verse 5, we read, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Jesus, in fact, heals our greatest sickness. Jesus alone makes us whole. In, in Jesus, we can truly say, it is well with my soul. It, it is impossible to have peace without Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a moment. But first, I, I think you would agree with me that peace that Jesus gives really is amazing. Truly amazing, but I also want to suggest that that's not the most surprising thing of this text today. The most surprising thing in this text today is not the peace that Jesus gives. As amazing as it is, it's really to whom Jesus gives this peace. In a moment, we'll see in this text an unexpected twist in this incredible story. But, but before we go there, we need to 
review just a little bit where we've been over the last couple of weeks in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 56, verse 9 through 12, we learn that when leaders fail, people suffer. Uh, we learned how character is normal, normally to blame when leaders fail, and when this happens, people follow. People are greatly or terribly impacted by the failure of leaders. Certainly, when that happens, there is no peace. And we see that in our world today, in our country. We see that even within the evangelical church today. Failed leadership seems to be a growing problem today. Thankfully, there is one leader who has never failed, and it's Jesus the Christ, our King, our Redeemer, the Good Shepherd of the sheep. He has promised to build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He, he, has, a, he has promised to establish justice. We're told about this Jesus, King Jesus, that of Him it says, a bruised reed he will not discard. A faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. He, he's promised to never leave you or forsake you. We're, we're called to put our trust in the Good Shepherd. Not, not in man. Man will always disappoint. The Good Shepherd will never disappoint. In, in Jesus, in Jesus alone, we find peace. Then in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 1 through 13, we learn that though the righteous suffer in this, end, in this age, their end is peace. Um, suffering comes before glory. But we also learn that though the wicked flourish in this age, their, their end will go from bad to worse. So Isaiah teaches us that trusting Jesus gives hope and a future. Now, with that being said, we come to verse 14 of Isaiah 57, and we, we learn here that Isaiah says, and it shall be said. In other words, from, the, from Isaiah's viewpoint, there would be a day coming when it would be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. So I, I think it makes most sense if we understand the voice here to be that of the Lord Himself. In other words, the Lord Himself says, remove every obstruction from my people's way. So that was God's desire. Um, this would be the very thing that God would provide. God would see that this work is done. Um, and this, in fact, sounds very similar to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which John's Gospel tells us found fulfillment in the ministry of John the Baptist. This building up and preparing the way and removing every obstacle would have included road work that's done in a city, around the city, to prepare for the visit of a great king. And that pictured how the ministry of John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the hearts of people for the coming of the Messiah. So John's ministry included calling people to repentance from sin. Repent of your sins and turn back to the Lord. 
So, so John the Baptist came to grab the attention of people and to point them to Jesus. It, it was a way to help people not miss the promised Messiah. And in our context here in chapter 57, we learn that God prepares the hearts of His people for peace. In other words, in order to not miss the peace that the Lord promised, hearts needed to be made ready. That, that was God's will, that every obstruction would be removed from my people's way. And this is God's work. God would see to it that hearts are made ready for the peace that only Jesus could give. And when we look at, look at verse 15, we see that one of the primary obstructions or obstacles to receiving that peace that only Jesus could give is, in fact, pride. Pride is a principal struggle of sinful humanity. And the remedy for pride is to have a proper view of God. That's, I love that we sang, Behold Our God Today. That's the remedy for pride, to have a proper view of God. And in the first half of verse 15, we're given that proper view of God. Here we're taught that God dwells in the high and holy place. The first part of 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So what is revealed about God here is intended to exalt God to His rightful place and to humble us as people who are created to live for the praise of His glory. That's why we're here. God Himself says, I dwell in the high and holy place. But Isaiah also tells us something more about God. Isaiah says God is the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God is set apart from creation and is in fact in a class all by Himself. This verse speaks of His transcendence. His greatness is beyond our comprehension. He is exceedingly great. There, there is no one great like our God. He is above all else. And when we say above all else, we're saying that His worth and His beauty and His honor and His glory and His very being are infinitely, infinitely exceeds all else. He inhabits eternity. He, he occupies eternity. He he has always existed. He has no beginning or end. <laughs> he is infinitely great. And this is why He alone is high and lifted up. This is why He alone dwells in the high and holy place. Set above and apart from all that is ordinary. God is in a class all by Himself. And when Isaiah says this, when Isaiah says this, he would have very clearly remembered how his life was changed when the Lord revealed himself to him in a vision in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 1, we read this In the year that 
King Uzziah died. Now remember, King Uzziah died because of his pride. It was his pride that led to his downfall. So in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. That's the same thing that's said of the Lord in Isaiah 57, verse 15. It's the same thing that's said of, of the suffering servant in chapter 52, verse 13 as well. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Think about this. It says, And the foundations of the thresholds shook as the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was undone when he saw the glory of the Lord. I think far too often in our own hearts and lives, we don't give God His rightful place that He alone deserves. Instead of treating God as infinitely great who is alone worthy of our allegiance and our devotion and our worship and our adoration and praise, our obedience. We, we elevate and lift up our own self. We, we want what only God deserves. We want recognition and honor. We want our way rather than God's way. When in truth, everything about us is created and redeemed to be for the praise of God's glory, for the exaltation of the name of Jesus. We too often attempt to domesticate, make make tame God in our own thinking, and we take God for granted. We see this in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there we hear a conversation between Susan and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan. And I quote, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. <laughs> That's a picture of our Jesus. He isn't safe, but he's good. And that's why when Isaiah saw the Lord on His throne high and lifted up, he was overwhelmed by the holiness of God and his own utter sinfulness before a holy God. But 
to our amazement, we should also remember the mercy of God in providing there for Isaiah a hot coal from the altar that the seraphim brought and touched the lips of Isaiah and cleansed him, cleansed his lips and atoned for his sins. That's the mercy of God. As Isaiah was undone when he was given eyes to see the holiness of God. We, we see here how God dwells in the high and holy place. And, and, and in an utterly astounding way, God dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Verse 15 again says, For thus, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is really mind-blowing to think about this. The one who is infinitely great, who is holy, 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 who is in a class all by himself, who is high and lifted up, he dwells with the one who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. The first thing that I think we have to ask is, how in the world is this possible? Isaiah was undone when he saw with his eyes the holiness of God. How can a holy God dwell with sinful human beings? And the answer is found in the suffering servant, Jesus, who we learned about in Isaiah 53. Let me read Isaiah 53.5 again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. <laughs> Jesus suffered in our place to bring us back to God. What Jesus did on the cross gave those who believe peace with God. Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And so, only through the suffering servant, Jesus, can a sinful man be in the presence of a holy God and live. And live. It's not the proud. It's not the self-sufficient. It's not the self-righteous person that God dwells with. It's the one who has a contrite and lowly spirit. If you have a contrite and lowly spirit, you are broken by your own sin. You have eyes to see the holiness of God and you acknowledge your own utter sinfulness before that holy God. You have great sorrow in your heart over your own sin. You don't justify your sin. You don't minimize your own sin. You don't make excuses for your own sin. You can your sin to God. You repent of your sin. And by that I mean you leave your sin and you run to God with a humble heart, crying out for His mercy. Do you remember the parable 
that Jesus told us in Luke 18, 19 through, or 9 through 14 as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Listen as I read. This really speaks to this very issue. Verse 9 of Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will in fact be exalted. So a heart that is prepared to experience peace with God must be humble with a contrite and lowly spirit. This is what Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes. In, the, in these Beatitudes found in Matthew 5, Jesus taught what a life is like in His kingdom. In the very first two Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 3 and 4, Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. <laughs> those who mourn over their own sin will be comforted by God. He, he is eager to forgive if only we would be broken and contrite over our own sin. In verse 15, the Lord tells us that He wants to revive the heart of the contrite and the lowly. He, he wants to restore and to breathe new life into the heart of the one who is humble before Him. God dwells in the high and holy place. We, we understand that. But, but also, with Him, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That's, that's really the thing that ought to just utterly astound us. God takes our sins seriously. Uh, God takes our sins so seriously that He sent His only Son to the earth and to the cross to bear our sin and to bring those who are broken over their sin back into a right relationship with Him. And as verse 16 teaches us, certainly God is just in His anger, but He will not always be angry. Verse 16 says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life I have made. So our sin offends God. God's justice demands that we face judgment for our sin. God cannot overlook sin and not violate His justice. 
And so God is completely just when He is angry with us because of our sin. But, He tells us in verse 16 that He will not always be angry. (laughs) If He remained angry, the spirit of man would grow faint. God sees the limits of sinful humanity. And so, in compassion, Jesus was sent to drink the cup of God's just wrath or, or anger in our place. And He drank all of God's anger. And that's why Romans 8.1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation on those who are in Christ Jesus. God's anger has been removed. Isaiah 12.1 and 2 says this, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. That's good news. That's really good news. And and now in verses 17 through 19, we see what I think is the most surprising thing in this text. Uh, Here it is. God in mercy and grace promises peace to those who are helpless to help themselves. Verse 17 says, because of, their, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, uh, gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. So the, the sin of unjust gain here is a way of speaking of coveting, I believe. De- desiring things that God's not given to us or promised us. And if you remember in the Ten Commandments, the very last commandment is that. Do not covet which takes us right back to the first commandment, do not have any other gods before me. So, if we desire something or someone that God has taken from us, something that God's not given to us, we are really bowing our hearts to an idol or to a false god. And in this, God is right to be jealous for the affection of our hearts. So verse 17 says that God was angry for this sin. And tragically, we learn in the end of verse 17, but He went on backsliding in the way of His own heart. We have learned learned in Isaiah that the Lord went to great lengths to give Israel every possible opportunity to repent, but they stubbornly refused. Verse 17 tells us that the Lord was angry for their sin and God hid His face from them, but they continued on in their sin. They didn't turn from their sin. And so what would God do? What would you do if you were God? That's a scary question to ask, I know. And this is really where the surprise comes in because you would think and you would expect for God's just anger to remain on the unrepentant sinner. But look at verses 18 and 19. I have seen His ways full of iniquity, full of coveting, full of unjust gain, full of unrepentant sin, full of wickedness. The Lord says, I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will lead Him and restore comfort to Him and to His his mourners 
creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So here the Lord promised healing and peace to those who were indeed helpless to help themselves. They they didn't even want to change. They didn't want to leave their life of sin. They didn't want to repent. They didn't have a lowly and contrite spirit. They persistently, stubbornly persisted in their sin. In, In their pride, they had no regard for God. And you know what? (laughs) That's all of us in our unregenerate state. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and I quote, Speaking of all of us, before Christ mercifully saved us. Verse 1 of Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You lived in that following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That was all of us. (laughs) But... Why are we not now what we once were? Listen to the next two verses of Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, what a contrast. We were by nature objects of wrath. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. (laughs) This is really what verse 19 of Isaiah 57 is all about. That's what we're taught there. I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. Don't miss that. If you are saved here this morning, it's not because you took the first step to God. Scripture is clear that you were dead in your sins. You willfully lived in your sin. You chose to follow a way of life without God. You you lived your life satisfying the passions of your own heart. You didn't change. You didn't wake yourself up. You didn't bring yourself from death to life. While you were dead in your sin with no desire for God, God sovereignly chose to breathe new life into you. God chose to give you new life. You were spiritually dead, unable and unwilling to respond to God. And in that state, God chose to give you life. It is by grace you are saved. It is a gift of God. Amen. Verse 19 says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. Then the Lord promises in the latter part of verse 19, peace, peace to those who are near and far, says the Lord. And if we go back to Ephesians, continuing on in the same text, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, we're told that Jesus 
is our peace. And then in verse 17 of Ephesians 2, we read this, And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. So those who were near were the Jews, those who were far off were the Gentiles. And throughout Isaiah, we have been taught that the Gentiles were not even looking for salvation from the Lord. But here we're told that God promised salvation to those. And He delivered on that promise through Jesus. There, there is peace. There is peace given in Christ for those God graciously and mercifully chooses to save. But as we close verses 20 through 21, um, we're reminded that God says there is no peace for the wicked. Verse 20 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The, the wicked never, the wicked never find rest for their troubled soul. They will never be able to say, it is well with my soul. Their hearts and lives are like the tossing sea that never stops. Always turning, always stirring up more troubles in life. And so it's very sobering, but true that God says there is no peace for the wicked. So what, what does God want us to take away from this text today? I think that if we understand this text rightly, we will know that all of us are helpless to help ourselves. Our sin problem is far worse than what we're even aware of. There's nothing we can do to remedy our problem. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Our only hope is for our sovereign God to choose to have mercy on us and to heal us and to give us peace. Um, we, we have to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. We, we have nothing to give to God but our sin. And all that we can do is to cry out to God for mercy. We're not proud, not self-righteous, not full of ourselves, but humble, Broken, contrite, poor in spirit, we cry out to God for mercy. But know this also, what we see in this text is that God dwells in the high and holy place and, and God dwells with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That ought to astound you. God delights in reviving the heart of the humble. That's our hope. Only in Jesus will we find peace. Absolute well-being for our soul is something that only Jesus can give. So I would say to you today, maybe for the first time, but maybe again today, and tomorrow, cry out to God for mercy.
Let's pray together. Father, you've spoken so plainly in your word. Through Christ, by your spirit, you've spoken so plainly through what you have created. Your creation just declares your glory. And yet, Father, we confess how often we are blind to see the greatness of who you really are and what you and you alone deserve. And we get so fixated on what we want and and what we think we can do or must do and we ignore or minimize or forget your greatness. That you live in the high and holy place and you're in a class all by yourself. Father, remind us daily of what you have done through Jesus to atone for our sins so that we could be brought back into a right relationship with you where we can approach your throne of grace and call upon your name and live and even have confidence and expectation that you will see our needs and meet our needs so that we can live for your glory. Help us, Father, to remember what you have done through Christ by your Spirit so that we would not be proud and self-righteous, but we would be humble, we would be lowly and contrite in spirit, and that our hope and our peace that would, would be found only in what you give to us in Jesus. So, Father, give us eyes to see your greatness. Give us eyes to see our own sin. But give us eyes to see and a heart to believe the glorious gospel of your Son that gives us peace with you. Father, we know that we have that only because you've chosen to be merciful to us. And we just praise you and we thank you for what you have done through your Son, by your Spirit, to bring us back to you. Lord, help us to live the rest of this day and the rest of this week with this desire to exalt Christ, to make much of Christ. Not not ourselves, but to make much of Christ. You're worthy of this. So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.